Hi, I'm Sonia. Hi, I'm Sapna. And this is Loudmouth Lurkies. Welcome back, Loudmouths. How's everyone doing? I hope you all are doing well. Um, it's been, feels like such a weird year already. Um, but I feel like we say this every episode. I know. And it's something like we were expecting all of this to end when 2021 rolled around and it we hasn't We were very yet. naive. We were <laughs> too <very> naive. <laughs> exactly. Um, but if you haven't been here before, welcome. Um, and if you have been here before, you know that in this podcast, we talk a lot about mental health specifically about and through the perspective of the South Asian diaspora. And so we've also done several episodes about therapy and our South Asian identities and cultures. And for many in the diaspora, the intersection of our South Asian identity and the immigrant narrative affect our mental health and our relationships on so many levels. Yeah. So if you have been here before and you've, you know, caught up on all the episodes, if you haven't been here before, you should definitely do that. Um, but we talk a lot about mental health in a variety of areas. We've talked about medication and the taboo of medication in the South Asian community. We've talked about um, how to get therapy as a brown girl, whether you're in college or you know not in college anymore. Um, we've talked about self-care during the pandemic, um, the decolonization of self-care, mm-hmm. and Most recently, um, I talked about my own experience with mental health and um, how that's kind of played out in the South Asian community. Today, we are so, so excited to chat with Aparna Sagaram, who has gotten extensive experience in working with the South Asian and South Asian American communities as a couple and family therapist. So Aparna is a licensed marriage and family therapist practicing in Philadelphia. Hey. Um, She works with first and second generation immigrants and children of immigrants, helping clients unpack generational trauma and focus on generational healing, She also specializes in couples counseling, where she helps couples work through toxic patterns that keep them stuck and better understand what they bring to the relationship. So super excited to have you here with us today. Welcome, Aparna. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So before we get into it, do want to have a little bit of a content and trigger warning. We will be talking about trauma in this episode. We also will be talking about ways to heal from said trauma. So just wanted to put that out there before we we dive in super deep. Um, But Aparna, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself aside from the the bio we just read. Yeah, so I am a second generation uh, South Asian woman. So my parents immigrated to the States about 35 years ago. Um, so I have an older sister, um, and I am recently married. (laughs) Um, so that's been an interesting transition. Um, I've been living in Philadelphia for about 11 years. So I definitely call this my home. Uh, My parents live, you know, about 45 minutes away. So I'm definitely in touch with them pretty often. Um, and so I think I, I have a really good understanding of what it means to have that balance of, you know, individuating, having your own life, but also being, 
you know, close to your family and like honoring, you know, some family values. And, you know, that's definitely things that we'll get into today, especially when we think about unpacking generational trauma and generational healing, this idea of like holding that balance of individuating, but also being part of a family unit. So that's something that I'm really passionate about and I embody as a, you know, as a human being myself. So I'm really excited to talk today. Yeah. I mean, that's super exciting because one, you're in Philadelphia and I, for those of you who don't know, I do go to school in Philadelphia. I haven't been back in a year, but always love finding South Asian, strong, loudmouth Lardkis in Philly. Love it. But also what you said about like individuating and like having your own experience um, as a South Asian woman also, which I think is like a different layer to all of this. Um, and it's Definitely. really like affirming to hear um, after Sapna and I, well, not not Sapna the entire time, but like I have been living at home for the past over a year now. Um, and it's like, how do you maintain your identity um, while you're back in a place after like getting a taste of freedom? No, exactly. And they, I know a lot of people, my, someone I was really close to in high school explains it as like the terrible twos when you go to college and you come back and you just have no clue how to be home because you exactly gotten that taste of freedom. So it's hard trying to, to go back to that for sure. And I know that a lot of people all across the country are experiencing that. Um, but Aparna, it was really incredible kind of hearing your experience um, because you do work closely with a lot of South Asian and South Asian American communities. I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about what are practices you employ when working with this group specifically? And moreover, how does it differ um, from working with other populations? And do you find that as being a South Asian woman, do you find that that helps you work with this community and does it give you other insights that you wouldn't have otherwise? Yeah, so I think one of like the biggest concepts that I keep in mind is this idea of family first, right? And the collective mindset. So I think a lot of just people that are not from like the Western culture, right? We have this like collective mindset and like this idea that everything that you do is for the family, right? And so I think a lot of us subscribe to that culture, but then we're also very much in the American culture. And so we, we kind of have one foot in each, one foot in each, uh, in each area, let's just say. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think this idea of individuating feels really threatening to immigrant families, right? Because the, so basically individuating means that you are becoming your own identity outside of your family unit. Right. And so like when you come from a collective mindset, that can feel very threatening because a lot of parents are like, OK, well, what's going to happen to me when I get old? Are my children going to be there for me? Right. And so we have to work to help find that balance. Right. And so it's really important to keep that in mind when working with children of immigrants or South Asian families and individuals of like, how do you hold both? And I think that so you can do that. Right. You can do it in a healthy way. You can individuate be your own person and still be close to your family. Absolutely. No, and I, I think that's a hard one also for us to, to reckon with as we grow older, because at the same time, so many of our decisions and the, the ways that we act and behave, we are always at the back of our mind, oh, what are people going to think? What are our family members going to think? What are our friends going to think? And I think that does very, that very much impacts the way that we, we do things and we see ourselves. Yeah. And 
I feel like I'm going to be fangirling this entire episode um, just because like everything you're saying just like lines up with everything I want to do. And Savna and I have talked about this and we obviously talked about this when we first got on a call with you, but um, our listeners know that we've talked a lot about cultural responsivity and cultural competency and why therapy is just such a foreign concept in the South Asian community because of that exact thing, right? Like we're coming from, our parents are coming from a collectivist culture and we're growing up in an individualistic culture that emphasizes self over community. And that contrasting with community over self is such a hard like barrier to cross, especially as a kid, right? Like until you, like until I got to the point where someone had explained this to me, I was in a class and my professor was like, you know, this is a huge difference in like, we see it from like community norms to down to like how children's books are written and what pronouns they use um with like me my versus like we us and once that like once that was explained to me i was like it all clicked and i was like wait that's why there's this constant conversation of right and it's like such a trope at this point but it's so true and it's so difficult, I think, as a South Asian person to go into something like therapy with someone who doesn't understand that and to have to explain that, especially when you don't have the words to do that. Because I remember when I first started going to therapy, it was like extra labor on my end to explain to my white straight male therapist that like, it's not an unhealthy thing that I care about what my parents think. This is how I was raised. This isn't an unhealthy relationship. Um, granted, there were some parts that were unhealthy, but like, like I don't know how else to explain to you that like, it really does matter what my parents think and how they're going to respond. And I can't just be like, fuck it. Let me just do what I want to do. Yeah. yeah, like when a white therapist was like, yeah, just tell your mom that you have a boyfriend. And I was like, oh, yeah, let me just get disowned. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I, and something that I noticed with a lot of my South Asian clients is like they don't have to put in that extra work to explain why this is important to them or like why they can't say certain things to their parents. Like, I, like it's just that common understanding of like, yeah, I get it. Like there's certain things that you wouldn't tell your parents because you don't want to, you don't want them to feel hurt, right? There's like, definitely this idea of like, it is caretaking on like a role reversal kind of way, but sometimes that's necessary. And like, we have to normalize that within certain cultures. Yeah. And so I think it also just reminds me of like, why I want to go into the field of therapy. And this idea of cultural competency has been my driving motivator ever since I learned about it. And I think that's also like the power of words and and language is like, once you learn something that like clicks, you just like hold on to it. Um, Because there is that sigh of relief that you get to breathe when you don't have to expend that extra emotional labor. and you get to talk to someone who gets it. And I think that's why we also flock to people who look like us because it's that sense of comfort and 
stability and security and that like knowing. So Aparna, you know, we talk about cultural competency and responsivity a lot. And we've also talked about how, like, I'll share that I had a South Asian therapist. That was the first person I had ever gone to therapy with. And she was awful. Like, I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. It was just bad. And while I've had to expend the emotional labor, my last three therapists have all been super successful and they've all been like straight white males. Um, And I think the most recent, the reason we have had such a good relationship is because the onus is not placed on me um, to explain everything. Like it is the responsibility of the therapist to kind of do his own work and understand the type of experience I have and the type of experience as other clients are going to have. So my question here is like outside of just going to a therapist who looks like you or treating people who look like you, how does cultural competency and responsivity like play into the field? Are therapists like, is it the responsibility of the therapist to do this work on their own? Yeah. I mean, so I think it's really interesting. Like when, when we are looking for therapists that look like us or have a similar background, right. I think that this can also assume a lot of things, right. And I found myself in what you're going through, right. And I've experienced this, but I think it's really important to take that step back and say, okay, well, how is this person different from me? Right. When you, when you start to like unpack what's different, you realize, okay, these experiences are not the same, right? The concept might be the same, like the struggle to set boundaries, but it looks very different for each person. And so I do think that the ownership is on the therapist or the practitioner, whatever, whatever field you're in to do that work, right? To understand the culture, to understand some of these values and these beliefs that this person would be holding. And then like, you know, doing that check-in and saying like, hey, this is what I know about your culture. Is this right? Or do you, does this relate to you? Or is this something that you do, right? And so even if you share the same background and, I, and maybe that's what happened with your therapist, Sonia, like, like maybe this person had assumed a lot of things about you, right? And so there is that curiosity. Once curiosity is out of the room, like there's no, there's no way to grow the relationship and that's for any relationship, right? So I think that's the most important piece is that curiosity and like, not assuming that you know the person just because you share the same background. I really like that point of curiosity. I've also heard in the in some like healthcare spaces the the difference between cultural competency and culturally responsive or cultural humility. And I feel like this whole term of cultural competency, it's kind of hard to reach because it's hard to know everything about every culture and we never will. Right. So that whole idea of being curious and being open minded and being humble in that sense to understanding that you're not going to know everything about someone's culture, but to listen to them and accept whatever a person has to say, knowing that even within cultures, everyone's experiences are so different. So I think that really uh, individual focused care is super, super important. Um, But with regards to South Asian culture and South Asian um, American communities, what are concepts that you see come up often? Um, is it more focused on, like you were saying earlier, the very collectivist nature of our culture? Or is it something specific about the immigrant experience that you see in different populations that you work with? Um, is it a mix of both? I think it would be interested, especially interesting, especially because Sonia and I um, want to work in such diverse spaces, kind of keying in what exactly 
or issues that do come up? How do we um, understand our communities differently? Yeah, I mean, so I think a, a really big concept that I see a lot in South Asian communities is this, like, this idea of shame and guilt, right? And how it is, like, the motivating factor for everything, right? And so I think if, when we're talking about shame and guilt, right, that spills into everything else, right? The struggle to set boundaries, a lot of people pleasing, putting other people before you, prioritizing others over yourself, right? All these are symptoms of if you're operating from a place of shame and guilt, right? And so a lot of this is like choosing what you want to do versus what your family wants. And, and I think that goes a lot beyond like just career and who you're going to marry, right? Like it looks like choosing how you spend your money or how you take care of yourself, your work ethic, like all that is influenced by your parents, right? And how you were raised. And so this idea of like, when we operate from a place of obligation, right? When we operate from a place of obligation, that leads to shame and guilt, right? And so operating from the place of obligation is generational, right? If you think about what your parents did and what their parents and their parents, every, most generations are not cycle breakers, right? There's like maybe one or two people from each generation that is a cycle breaker. And we're like, oh, that person was really different and did something really different, right? But the majority of people just do what is expected of them. And so that's a really interesting concept that I, that I think comes up a lot with South Asian clients. That's so, so interesting. Um, because as you're saying it, it makes sense, but not something I've, I've thought about before. But it also goes to show is like, shame and guilt are just such complicated emotions and also yes. such difficult emotions to grasp. Like there's not enough, at least from like surface level, I don't feel like I've seen a lot of conversations about South Asian shame and guilt, but it's something we deal with on a daily basis. Yes. Yeah. And I think it would be interesting also to hear, because you do work with families on a whole, how that shame and guilt affects relationships um, between parents and children or um, couples, different, different pieces of a couple, um, because shame and guilt are such strong, deep-rooted emotions. Well, I also think like one of the things that uh, comes to mind right now as we're talking about that is I have had partners and friends who um, their parents have like been like, oh, if you don't do this, I won't do this, right? And it's like for college students, it's like, if you don't obey me, I will cut your college tuition or I will cut you off or the guilting of like, um, Indian parents when they're like, I think you mentioned this earlier, but like, who's going to take care of me? And this idea of like, oh, you just want me to like die alone in like, you know, by myself. And these like very dramatic, like statements of how dare you, this is on you. I am not the culprit. Um, and you are responsible for whatever bad things happen. Yeah. Well, yeah. And it's, it's, it's like, I think that a lot of immigrant parents don't know how to express like their fears and their worries. So it, it has to be this dramatic statement, right? And if it's a dramatic statement, they're hoping that it will, it, you will do what they want you to do, right? It's that blackmailing. They're making you feel bad. They'll guilt you into doing something. Whereas if they were to actually say, Hey, you know, I am worried about my future and I'm worried about my old age. Do you think we can have a conversation about what that would look like? 
nine times out of 10, your kid will want to have that conversation with you. Right. But if you're saying like, okay, whatever, I'm going to die alone anyway, like that, that would make me shut down. And so I, yeah, I would just be like, honestly, I feel like a lot of it is Indian cereals just normalizing <laughs> yeah. how dramatic our parents are allowed to be. Um, yeah. No, they need to stop. <laughs> no, and I think like, that's Don't get huge. me wrong. I love I love seeing Gopi Bahu like washing the, um, the laptop and like drying it on a clothesline and it just being a dramatic mess. I love it. The memes are great, but our parents need to stop. No, I think a huge part of that is communication. Like you were yeah. saying, Aparna, like if, if your parents come to you and say, this is an issue that I'm facing, can we chat about it? I feel like that seems a lot more, it just feels a lot more straightforward than like having all of these different ways of maintaining control and trying to blackmail or trying to get your child to do specific things. Um, yeah, it's just it's just very interesting how that would just make things harder and ruin, not ruin, but even just challenge the relationships between parents and children. Well, it doesn't allow the relationship to go deeper, right? You're just responding to, through defensiveness and resentment and anger mm -hmm. and frustration, right? But if you if you open up the lines of communication, it, it allows the relationship to deepen and you can actually talk about like emotions and how you're feeling and like your worries without feeling threatened or, or abandoned. Absolutely. Yeah, it does just really hinder it from going deeper and learning more about your parents. There's so many things for me that I just want to know about my parents, but we there's like a, a baseline of like what we usually don't discuss, which is just yeah. interesting. Um, but to shift the conversation a little bit, we've been talking a lot about these feelings of shame and guilt and how that affects people. Um, I actually took this course in the fall called Environmental Transgenerational Epigenetics, which is a huge mouthful. Um, but pretty much what we learned about is how, how all of these environmental stressors or uh, exposure to certain behaviors or abuse or toxins or anything can affect us on a biological level. And so my project specifically was on abuse. And we were learning that anecdotally, there's this form of like, intergenerational abuse that people who experience abuse might be more likely to um, might might be more likely to have that in the future and how it'll affect them and their children and their children after that and it's this really just biological um, something that's fascinating but this how we see it in kind of the therapy space and the mental health space is this term intergenerational trauma yeah and I guess Intergenerational trauma has been a conversation for a while, but I think it's becoming more of a, a buzzword in non-clinical spaces, and people are now realizing and learning about it. So given these conversations about shame and guilt, given these conversations about relationships between children of immigrants and their parents and how, um, I guess, how one relationship can then affect the other. What have you seen in your clientele um, in regards to generational trauma? And how can, how can someone figure out if their trauma is generational? 
Yeah. So I think it's helpful to kind of just talk about what intergenerational trauma is, right? So generational and intergenerational trauma, it's the same, same term. So it's basically like a negative experience that happens to one person and then impacts that. And that impact of that gets passed down until a future generation is ready to confront that impact. Right. So, and generational trauma is something that can impact all populations. It's not specific to, you know, South Asians or like a specific type of community. Right. So like, the Holocaust survivors, right? Experience generational trauma, being a refugee, right? Or being an immigrant, right? These are all examples of a trauma and how that can get passed down. And so when healing is not part of that process of like, say like, you know, your immigrant parent does not try to heal, the trauma that they've went through gets passed down to you. So you may not have experienced that trauma, right? You did not immigrate to a new country, but you will feel the effects of that. Right. And so just some examples of what generational trauma like looks like, how it manifests is, you know, feeling the need to always be on mistrust of people, high anxiety, depression, panic attacks, nightmares, the flight or fight response, um, issues with self-esteem, self-confidence, alcoholism, and just the list goes on. So like you will feel all those symptoms, even if you necessarily did not go through that trauma. So Before we get into it a little bit deeper, there was something that you had mentioned when we had first gotten on a call that I think is really interesting and important to mention here. And that was about how when, like how one, immigration in itself is a huge change and can result in, can be a form of trauma, right? Especially if you're not ready for it. So I believe you had mentioned um, how for a lot of immigrants, they when they immigrated there was like kind of like a pause um in formation of like um you know like brain formation and cognitive formation and like being stuck in that moment so i was wondering if you could explain that a little bit yeah so anytime that there's a trauma that occurs in a in a human right generally that they freeze at that emotional they emotionally freeze at that age of what it had happened right so a lot like so for example my parents right they came here in their 20s right early 20s and so like emotionally right they they essentially froze at that age so any any sort of thinking emotional thinking that they do so they may be very successful people but emotionally right they're not able to to think develop developmentally beyond that age so as we get older right their children we eventually surpass that age right because we're able to heal we're able to heal further than they are. Where they end is where we begin. And so there's a point where you hit in your relation with your parents and you're like, oh, wow, like I'm beyond them, right? And there's there's a grief process that happens with that. But it's also, it's it's helpful to know and label it and say, okay, this is just where my parents are, right? And, you know, they're here physically and they're, you know, I'm able to connect with them maybe on a more intellectual, logical level. But that emotional awareness is just not there. That's so interesting because I think in my experience, I've definitely found that because that in my sense has really explained that breach in communication or that gap in when we're having conversations, I'm like, why don't you state this clear? Just tell me what you're feeling. Like, tell me just what's on your mind. And that's when you were mentioning that communication. And now that you're mentioning this, it just all clicks for me. Um, 
because same here, my parents immigrated when they were in their early mid twenties. And now that I'm in my early twenties, there is that sort of gap when we're communicating about things that I think are relatively simple, but definitely when thinking in a different perspective, if you take your entire life, pack it up and then move across the country where you have no social support um, and very other few people that you can call family and friends, it'll impact you. And I think that's something I have to have in mind when I'm communicating with my parents. Yeah. It's a way to build empathy, right? When we think about our parents and that's part of the generational healing is like, you have to have empathy in order to, to move forward with healing. Yeah. So, I mean, getting back to intergenerational trauma, one of the things I wanted to bring up is, um, especially given all of the conversation, um, the diaspora is having about, the farmers protest um, is examples of intergenerational trauma in the Punjabi community. Um, just because I feel like examples make it easier to kind of understand. And if you have closer proximity to it, it helps you really like cope with what's going on. So I am Punjabi. I was born in India, I was born in Punjab. Um, but examples of intergenerational trauma in the Punjabi community, I feel like and Aparna, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so you have partition, right? 1940s, you have partition. Um, and then you have 1984, which is Blue Star, which is sick, the Sikh genocide. And then you have now the farmers protest. And so like, it's not only is it um, intergenerational, like trauma, but it's also like trauma that hasn't healed. Um, you know, at partition and then at 1984 and now um, because of like, so one, it hasn't healed. And then two, you're just experiencing more trauma on top of more trauma. Um, so my question here is like, well, I don't even know if I have a question here. It's just like, what is your, what is your take on that? Yeah. I mean, I think that's like when, when it's, when the trauma is not healed, right. It'll manifest in different ways as each generation progresses. Right. And and that, and it looks like it looks different in every generation, right? And I think that, like, especially when we think about like with with immigrants, right? When immigrants come to the states, right? They are their only the only thing on their mind is like physical survival, right? Like, what do I what do I need to do to make sure I'm fed, my family's fed, and that I can survive right now, right? And because we are set up with that, right? If we're if we're fortunate enough, we're set up with that. So then our our, our healing looks like, okay, what is my identity, right? Like, what does emotional healing look like for me? Like, what is it that I want to do with my life, right? Like, you don't have to worry about a lot of these physical needs because they're already met, right? Mm -hmm. And then the next generation explores that even further, right? They're, they're trying to take healing to the next level. And so it just continues. But when you don't allow for that healing, you essentially, you, you essentially, you stay stuck, right? Each generation just stays stuck and, they, and they're not able to move any further. Yes, and what you're what you're saying very much reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs yes. that as we move on generations and especially being child of immigrants, it is very, very different um, in terms of what stressors they face and what stressors we face. Um, but but yeah, it is also interesting, Sonia, that you're mentioning all of these groundbreaking societal events that are leading to all this intergenerational trauma. And even I think about all of the experiences that we're facing now, how this will impact generations and generations to come. 
Yeah. Um, I feel like it's one of those things that like we'll see it in the black community also, right? Yes. Like given everything that's going on from slavery to the civil rights movement to then like, you know, um, incarceration, incarceration. And um, from the whole entire Black Lives Matter movement that has been going on prior to 2020, um, it's just trauma after trauma after trauma. And I feel like this is an important thing that I kind of want want to understand is like, these seem like they seem connected, but they also seem like two different things, right? There's the experience of actual physical recurring trauma um, that you don't have control over. And then there's the experience of not being able to heal from trauma and then that continuing on. So obviously they're connected, right? If I continue to experience trauma, I'm not going to have the time and space to heal from it. But how do we then address that? Yeah, I think that's one of my fears too, because this term intergenerational trauma sounds so intimidating, especially if we think that someone's experiencing it and for generations to come, your progeny and their children and generations will experience that. It sounds super scary. And also just how do we move forward? What do we do right now? Or what do we, how do we heal so that it's not like that? Yeah. And I think that it's really important to like, we need to take the pressure off ourselves, right. To feel like we have to, we're the ones that have to heal all these past generations trauma, right. Cause that's not possible, right. You can only heal what you see, like what you know and what you've experienced. Right. And so I think it's, it's the first step is just awareness, right. Like starting to like notice your family patterns, notice what, what feels good, what's not feeling good. Like what are some of these patterns that you're repeating that you're getting stuck in. Right. Notice how your parents interact with each other. How do they cope with things? How do you cope with triggers, right? All of these are just, it's all information to help you start to understand your patterns, your beliefs, um, and like we, and like some of these toxic patterns that we find ourselves repeating, right? And so I think it's like, it's also, so yes, it's, we don't want to make this seem like it's an easy formula, right? Because healing looks different for everyone. And so just by starting to notice like what's around you and like all the information that you have access to right now, right? Like I was saying, like your patterns, your beliefs, your, um, these like ideas that you hold will really help you start to like figure out, okay, what, like, what are the things that I want to heal? Like, what are the things that I want to start to show up more authentically in? And then it's taking all that awareness and rerouting it, right? Trying something different. And I think that it's, it's, I think it's, it's very helpful to have, to work with a professional when, when trying to like reroute these toxic patterns. Cause I think it's also hard to see it on your own, right? It's hard to see like, okay. Cause when you, when you work with a therapist, they, they, they're the ones who actually help you identify what these patterns are, right? Like we're all creatures of habit. We tend to do the same thing over and over and over again. Right. So if you were to take the last two relationships you were in, or even three, you will start to see that you show up as the same, you show up the same way, you do the same things. And, you know, so a lot of people are like, why do I always find myself in this situation, right? Why do I always find myself like chasing after unavailable people, right? Like there's a reason why we do these things. And so when you work with a professional, they help you start to connect those pieces together. And then, you know, we start to find ways to help you like reroute that, right? So you notice the trigger and we're like, okay, let's try something different. Yeah. 
And so it takes time, right? It's like, it's a slow process. Yeah. I think that is something that I want to reiterate of like, it is okay to to see a professional for these things because this isn't something you figure out on your own. Trauma is a huge, 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 huge thing to tackle by yourself and to feel like you have to tackle it by yourself. Like you shouldn't. You should not tackle trauma by yourself. And I think this whole concept of intergenerational trauma shows that trauma is often, and it usually is, bigger than just us. It's all of the relationships we have. It's all of the things that we do. It's it's what our ancestors have done and our parents and our grandparents. Um, So definitely, as we advocate for a lot on this podcast, if you want therapy and you think that you would benefit from it, please go out and seek it um, because you can't do this by yourself. The other thing I want to talk about is like Sapna and I are both people who want to go into the healthcare field. um, And one of the things, one of the phrases that gets thrown around quite often is trauma-informed care, right? And what is trauma-informed care is it something that we can imp- – how do we implement trauma-informed care? Um, how accessible is it? Um, so first want to ask you about, about that. Yeah, so trauma-informed care is when working with people, right, it's this idea that safety and empowerment is at the forefront. And so it's kind of going in with the assumption that everybody has some sort of trauma and that it's important to keep in mind when you're working or when you're in interactions with these people, right? Because it's it's this idea that people are responsible or are in control of themselves and their own lives and they have ownership and authority over themselves, right? And that's through the lens of safety and empowerment. Because when we think about trauma, right? Most times like that's what's taken away, right? It's the idea of safety and empowerment is taken away from you. So we wanna give that back as much as possible. And I think it's honestly, it's a mindset. Like, I don't think it's like a, a framework to, it's not like, um, like a theory or a modality. I really do think it's a mindset. And so it can be applied in your relationships. It can be applied in your friendships and in your family. Like you think about it with your parents, right? Like I said earlier, it's important to build empathy. If you think about them through the lens of trauma-informed care, right? How do we talk to them with safety and empowerment at the forefront, right? And so it's like understanding them as, okay, you know, they might be in their 60s, but emotionally they're in their teens or their early 20s, right? And so kind of like going in with that mindset and having empathy for that. Wow. Yeah, I think that's huge. I know for me, uh, this concept of trauma-informed care has come around a lot because an organization that I'm part of works with unhoused individuals in L.A., and people who are experiencing homelessness experience, they have so much trauma that they deal with, just not only by virtue of like living on the streets and all the things that come with that, but even just the journey and the path to get there is often so riddled with trauma. And I think that something we've talked a lot about is just listening to people and understanding that even if they're sitting face to face with you and telling you what they've experienced, there's always so much more than what they tell you. And so understanding that everyone's stories are not just what they tell you, but often the things that they hold close to themselves that they don't tell others are also just so incredibly important when we are working with people, just to be mindful of different triggers that people might experience or different things that might feel or might make people feel a certain way. It's super important to remind ourselves that when we are working with someone one-on-one. Yeah. And I mean, I think just just what you said, Sapna, you said, 
someone experiencing homelessness, right, or unhoused, right? Those terms are already a form of trauma-informed care because the way that it's said, right, like if you if you say someone is homeless, that becomes their identity, right? But if you're saying someone who's experiencing homelessness or someone who is unhoused, that's just a small part of who they are. And exactly. so I think just like changing the language is is a really big part of it. Yeah. I mean, trauma-informed care is something I've become – very interested in over the past few years. Um, I'm taking a juvenile justice class right now. um, And in the past few weeks, we've met with formerly incarcerated folks who went to prison when they were children um, and are now in their 30s and 40s. Um, Wow. Yeah. And so like, it's really, really interesting because the the conversation that comes up each time we've spoken to these individuals is like, what is, how do you address trauma and recognizing that this is a trauma, right? And so I think awareness, uh, which you said is like the first step. So recognizing that you have experienced a trauma and then um, recognizing how do you speak about that and how do you find security and how do you foster security if you're the person who's trying to implement trauma-informed care. And then the other side of all of this is like, I also am working on um, an application for folks who are suffering with PTSD, right? And so how do you implement trauma-informed care from that perspective? And I feel like it's one of those things that is just, it's a mindset. You, it's not, it's not bound by one area in your life. It is something that will permeate throughout everything you do once you start to operate from that that perspective. We always love to end our episodes with solvency um, because we recognize that like hearing all these things and like understanding the problem is the first step. But then leaving without feeling like there's a solution, regardless of how big the problem is, can make you feel really, um, you know, at a loss for like, control and and some security. So given that this is a huge issue and that cannot be solved in a day, um, recognizing that, can we talk a little bit about generational healing? Yes. Yes. So generational healing is the other side of the coin, right? It's like what we, I really try to keep a good balance of trauma and healing in my sessions because I think it's just something that people want to feel empowered, right? People want to, we, we talk about, we uncover all these patterns and triggers and beliefs. And then it's like, okay, like, what do I do with all this stuff? Right. And so I think it's really important to, to, like I was saying earlier, right. The awareness piece, right. Like how start to recognize, like, what are the things that you feel like you do well, right? Like, how do you handle stress? How do you handle when, when you're in a tough situation, right? Like, are you, are you want to prioritize yourself or do you prioritize other people? Like how, how do you set boundaries, right? Like, I think just sort of taking an inventory of your life and feeling and seeing like what, what's feeling good right now and what's not feeling so good. And I think taking like, what's not feeling so good and talking it out with a professional, and saying like, here, these are the things I'm struggling with. Like, how can I, how can I work through this? I think it's also, while it's very important to, to understand generational trauma, I think it's like, don't put that pressure on yourself to feel like you have to heal like every other generation. What you do now it impacts the rest of like, your, you know, your lineage. And it's not like that, right? Like it's, you can only focus on yourself. And I think that's what's important, right? Like kind of bringing back the focus 
to you? And like, what can you do in this moment? And what can I do to just make the next week, right? The next like month better, right? So take it, taking it just literally like day by day to help you move forward. And like small steps are still steps. That's such a great reminder and definitely something I will take with me because I know that I often get frustrated in conversations with my parents (laughs) about a wide variety of things. But I think sitting down and really understanding even just my relationships with them through this um, trauma-informed care model or mindset is super important. Um, Yeah. And I think just like one more like last piece of advice is like, I had mentioned this early earlier in the episode that like where your parents healing ends is where your be- is where yours begins right so you have already come a, a very long way and so it's just utilizing taking those tools and like just moving forward with them yeah so thank you so much aparna for this lovely lovely conversation such an important conversation and one that we hope to continue um Make sure you guys follow Aparna on Instagram at Reflections with a Therapist. She just creates such wonderful content and it's such a helpful way for for me and Sapna and I'm really hoping for all of you to kind of continue these conversations uh, with yourself, with your family and your friends. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Loudmouth Lipkeys. You can catch us next week on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Anchor. A huge shout out to Sindhura Designs for the beautiful episode artwork this season. Make sure to check out her work on Instagram and her portfolio at sindhuradesign.com. And also, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe. We'd love to hear your thoughts, and we'll see you next week. Come, get the good, get the good, get the good. Better get it the guitar.